You're listening to the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. Today's guest, the brainchild of the NFL International Series, Alistair Kirkwood. Hello everybody, welcome to the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle, which you'll be able to find on iTunes and Audio Boom. This is the very first episode of the podcast and I thought what better time to start than October. There's NFL and baseball on, college football too, and the NBA and hockey are coming right up. On every episode, a great guest from the world of American sport will take you inside their life, whether it be current and former players, team executives, journalists and characters who have great stories to tell. Every month, the US sports journalist will join me to discuss all the latest sports news stories to make sure we get in our scolding hot takes, or not. My guest today on the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle will be NFL UK Managing Director Alistair Kirkwood. Alistair is the brainchild of the NFL International Series and he talked about his pitch to Roger Goodell for growing the game internationally, his obsessive Sunday night viewing schedule and he's very insightful on concussions. There's a lot in there that you won't know about the NFL games staged here in London and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's get to it. Now, before I get to Alistair, on each episode, I'll bring you the four storylines I want to talk about in my opening act. Today's first, I'm going to start with Vin Scully. Now, for those of you who don't know Vin Scully, the legendary broadcaster has called Dodger Games for 67 years. Can you imagine being a commentator for that amount of time? He joined the TV and radio booth for the Brooklyn Dodgers back in 1950 and soon after became the youngest man to broadcast the World Series at just 25. Now the team moved to LA in 1958 and Scully moved with them and he even turned down a chance to become the voice of the Yankees along the way. Now the great thing about Vince Scully, if you've never listened to him, you should go back, delve into the archive. He is unlike any of the modern day commentaries because the broadcast booths nowadays, there's two people in there and especially if you listen to a college game, there's a lot of screaming, there's a lot of shouting and it's very obvious who that team is calling for, whether it be the home commentators or the road ones. With Vin, he did everything on his own, right? Silence was his greatest trick. He was silent for 38 seconds in his final call at Dodger Stadium when Corey Seager tied the game with a two-out home run in the ninth inning. And of course, the game ended in the 10th with a walk-off by a guy called Charlie Culberson, who's who hadn't hit a home run all season. That was his first. So that was very Vince Scully-esque. But he stays quiet. He lets the atmosphere of the crowd come in. And you can hear it. If you're listening to the radio at home, you can hear the atmosphere. He takes you inside the stadium by being completely quiet. He was silent when Kirk Gibson hit that walk-off home run against the Oakland A's back in 1988 and the World Series. Scully could be heard all around the stadium as people turn on their radios there's a lot of stories about people going to Dodger Stadium to watch a game live, but still putting Vin onto their radios and on their into their ears. He'll be missed, and these were some of his final words in his last broadcast on October the 2nd against the Giants. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem life sends, a faithful friend to share, for every sigh a sweet song. And an answer for each prayer. Now my favourite story of Vince, and he's got a lot of them. He'd always tell you a story of every single batter that came to the plate. He seemed to have a 
encyclopedic knowledge of every single player that he called upon. But my favourite story, Scully discovered his love of baseball at age 8, exactly 80 years before his final broadcast in the aforementioned Giants game on October 2nd. So on October 2nd, 1936, in the second game of the 1936 World Series, Scully walked into a laundromat and he saw that the New York Giants, not the NFL team but a baseball team then, were being badly defeated. Scully, since then, he proclaimed that he was going to be a sports bro- a sports broadcaster. He was a big Giants fan growing up. And crazy but perfect symmetry for Vin and, and the man that he is, the 80 years to the day he retires from broadcasting. My second point today is a sad and tragic one. The death of baseball superstar Jose Fernandez, who passed away at the age of just 24 in a boating accident just a week before the end of the Miami Marlins season on September 25th. This was horrible, unnecessary news. At just 14, if you don't know his story, Fernandez was making his fourth attempt at escaping Cuba and fleeing to the United States. Now, someone fell into the water during the journey. It was pitch black outside. There were rough seas. Fernandez didn't know who'd fallen in and he jumped into the water and he saved his mother. It was his mum that had fallen in. And can you imagine the craziness of that situation? How ironic that a boat would end his life at just 24, 10 years after he made it to America. Now, he was supposed to be pitching on the Sunday, but his start was moved back a day, giving him allowance to go out. The horrible thing is, teammates on the Marlins turned down his invitation to go onto that boat. It could have been even worse for this team. Marcel Azuna, his teammate, told him not to go on the boat. It's dangerous out there. But remember, this nightlife is normal for ball players who clock off at 10, 11 p.m. at night and they want to go and socialise. Now, his boat was called Court Looking, with the words designed in the Marlins style and the word Court spelt with a backward K, the same way that fans saluted a Fernandez strikeout in Marlins Park. Now, the entire facts, of course, about the crash, they won't come out for months, if at all. But what we do know about Fernandez and what we should always remember was that he was as happy and joyful as they came. Now, he once caught a line drive off Troy Tulowitzki. It was a game against the Rockies. And Troy Tulowitzki hit an absolute shot towards the mound. Fernandez caught it. And you could clearly see from the batter's box that Tulowitzki had said to Fernandez, did you catch that? And Fernandez smiled and he said, yes, I did. When he first reported to the Marlins, he didn't have a suitcase. He turned up with a couple of shopping bags that carried all that he owned. After four seasons in the league, he compiled 38 wins, 589 strikeouts, and he had devastating pitching ability. Now, millions of Cubans try and make the journey that Fernandez successfully achieved. A lot of them don't achieve that. A lot of them don't get to the United States. So you can imagine the amount of grieving going on in Cuba right now and all those Miami residents that have been hurt by the news. All we can say is our thoughts are with Fernandez's family and those closest to him. Third on my list, the NFL team that I want to talk about is the Minnesota Vikings. Mike Zimmer's team lost Teddy Bridgewater and Adrian Peterson at the start of the season. That's one of the best running backs we've seen in recent history. Teddy Bridgewater was about to enter his third season with this team. He knew the system. He was growing into his role. And this Vikings team had Super Bowl aspirations. Now, they gave away high draft picks to secure Sam Bradford's services after Bridgewater went down. And he's still an unknown quantity in the NFL, by the way. And Bradford, he's an injury risk himself. Now, they're currently 4-0 on the season. Denver are the only other team with that record. And what's the comparison between the two? Well, of course, the similarity 
two of the best defences in football. And it's all because of head coach Mike Zimmer. Zimmer's 60 years of age and he had to work for 35 years as an assistant at the college and pro level before getting this gig. Putting that into perspective, he just defeated the New York Giants on Monday night and he defeated rookie head coach Ben McAdoo on the opposite sideline. Now McAdoo is 38 years of age. So Zimmer had to go three years less than McAdoo's current age as an assistant before he got his first job. And look at the performance he's getting from his team. What a defence he has built. The quarterbacks they've beaten so far, they include Aaron Rodgers, Cam Newton and Eli Manning. They kept Odell Beckham Jr. to 23 receiving yards against the Giants on Monday night. And remember, Bradford is his quarterback. He's operating to an efficiency demanded by Zimmer. But Bradford is not agile. And his running back is Jarek McKinnon out of Georgia Southern. Bradford's starting receivers are 5th and 7th rounders. That 5th rounder is Stefan Diggs. So Mike Zimmer, who knows playoff pain, he was a Dallas assistant when Tony Romo botched that field goal snap. He dropped it. And last year, Blair Walsh misses the kick against the Seahawks and the Vikings don't move on in the postseason. I think this year could be different. Now my last point today, before we get to Alistair Kirkwood, is the perception of Stephen Curry. Now the NBA season starts on the 25th of October and what I'm really interested to find out this season is how people perceive Stephen Curry, how they see him, how they look at him, how they watch him, how the media report on him, how opposing fans treat him. Because it's clear that there's two things going on right now. Curry is, you could say with quite some authority, the face of the NBA. But since July of this year, he also plays for a team who have joined forces with Kevin Durant, one of the top three players in the league. So the, the Golden State Warriors, they're no longer the good guys. And as your fame and popularity rises especially in a sports league, so does the distance you may have to fall as perceptions as perceptions change. What we've seen this summer uh, since the Warriors lost that seven-game series to the Cavs is a curry tour which has stretched from Western California all the way over to East Asia. And whatever the culture or country, it seems that his popularity has reached for unfathomable levels. He wouldn't have even imagined this could be possible when he was that scrawny kid at Davidson. And he probably wouldn't have even wanted it because he's such a down-to-earth person. But this is what happens in the NBA. We build stars up, we celebrate them, and then we tear them down again. We've seen it with LeBron James in a way. Four MVPs and he hasn't won it for a couple of seasons because the narrative has to change. Ask yourself why Mr Curry is perceived to be less arrogant than others. He may be humble and say the right things. He may be great off the court. But he may also stick his gum shield out and run down the court before his trays have even hit the bottom of the net. Does he have the benefit of the doubt with these things? I think perhaps he does. It'll be interesting to see how he plays alongside a guy in Durant who wants the ball all the time. He'll want shots, 25 of them, every single game. And he's got the pressure, Durant, of trying to prove that he can win a championship. How will Draymond Green deal with this? He's been the perfect teammate so far, but will he remain selfless among the success of what are going to be three big scorers around him? Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry. Curry's the leader by example, and he will remain that on the court. We know that Draymond Green is the voice within the locker room or a arena, but the NBA world doesn't watch that space. They can't watch that space. They're watching Curry, his actions, his behavior, his comments, his habits, his ticks, and not least his performance. So the question I'll leave you with is, does a star remain a star for his entire career? Can he? Is it possible? Because I think perceptions change. 
And I think the Golden State Warriors makeup has changed so much that we might see people start to look at Curry differently. He's done a tremendous job of quelling anything that could become an issue in his career so far. And that includes, by the way, his wife Aisha kicking and screaming and thinking she's very important. Will that continue or will outside forces, I guess, see to it that he be viewed as something different? We're going to find out. So he's Alistair Kirkwood of NFL UK, the managing director. Thanks for joining me. I think a lot of people see your face and hear your voice around the NFL International Series time of year, but they don't really know too much about you. So when did NFL become on on your radar when you grew up? How old were you? I think I was about 19 or 20. I I, uh, went to uni down here in London and got invited to a party, uh, which ended up being a Super Bowl party quite a few American students over that time um, I think it was at that age where I just accept any anything that had the party word to it um, kind of um, got intrigued by the atmosphere of the people that were kind of getting into the game and, you know. uh, then the next year when the season started I thought, I thought okay well let's let's give it a go let's Let's adopt a team, and uh, I took it from there. So, how did you end up at the NFL office? How did you get in the building? Um, so, I was doing a master's degree in the Netherlands, um, and it's a twenty-one month course for which uh, I had to take out a really hefty bank loan for. Um, the nature of the course was that you had to do a three-month assignment and do a 10,000 word project on the back of it but the main reason for doing it was um, for a lot of students is that you you do it in order to get a, a, a foot in the door somewhere for a future career and then secondly you get paid um, for, your, for your time so that kind of helps offset some of the bank loan and I had f- offers from five investment banks and I couldn't decide which one to accept and a, and a close friend did what close friends do, which is give you home truths. So the reason why you don't, you can't decide, is because you don't want to be a banker. Um, it's probably also a compliment, that kind of compliment. Yeah. Once that kind of hit home, I decided to decline all the offers, and I only had a month to go um, uh, before I had to start somewhere, and I and I had to do something because I was or else I wouldn't be able to graduate and another friend said why don't you just do something that you're interested in rather than actually try and try and work out what you want to do in a short period of time and then see if you can get somewhere so um, I decided to just uh, throw a Hail Mary and uh, see if I could get into sports organisations not because I wanted a career in sport far from it just because I actually if I was going to do three months somewhere and I didn't really know what it was then why wasn't why couldn't it be something I was just interested in so I wrote to FC Barcelona and I wrote to a vice president of the NFL um, and I got interviews for both the NFL one was a bit cheeky I, I wrote a a letter um, having got got the guy's name off the website off, off, off the NFL's website just said here's 10 things you're doing wrong internationally give me three months and I can solve two of them and uh, it must have um, worked in terms of at least cheekiness 
Um, so next week I was flown to the States. I had like a 10, 15 minute interview. Um, and then uh, they said, yep, come on board. Then the day before I was supposed to start, um, I got a phone call from H. I got a phone call from from the NFL saying that the HR department had um, just looked over things and looked at their systems, and that um, unfortunately I wouldn't be able to get paid for that three months. I'd like to say that I was very magnanimous about it, but the truth of it was that I actually had zero options. It was the day before my assignments were supposed to work to 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 begin. Uh, and I was running short of money at that point in time. But I just went, well, I said that this was going to be a labour of love, and it literally became a labour of love. Uh, I did it for three months, got a got some great access, um, really enjoyed it, um, then said my goodbyes and did not think about it. But after that, um, I got a really good grade for my project as well. Um, and... As a result, um, I started to think about what what I want to do. And uh, post graduation, I got a phone call out of the blue saying that they'd carved out a new role, and that uh, once I'd finished uh, my masters, um, would I be willing to join? And I'm, I, I strongly believe that if it'd been part of my master plan that I that I really wanted to have a career, that it wouldn't have worked out like that. I think it was probably more that truly just going with the flow um, just meant that it was maybe something that was meant to happen I think everyone that heard that answer is intrigued as to what you asked the NFL, what you told them you could improve. Oh I can't remember, all I know is that within about three months of starting permanently I look back at that, which would have been what, about nine months after I'd written it and every single one of the ten were wrong, they were completely off kilter and that's partly because when you're outside looking in you can make judgments but you don't have all the information in hand so you don't necessarily know why decisions are made or um, or who the stakeholders are or who you're trying to actually keep happy or um, uh, whether there's kind of mitigating circumstances behind things so mine was completely wrong um, and I told that story the first time when uh, in an interview for for doing some um, film about interns and I, I uh, so I told that story um, from back then and then the next week I got uh, something like five or six hundred emails or letters from people saying here are the ten things that you're doing wrong um, which was cut a um, they, they were I, more accurate were they or <laughs> uh, I don't know I'd like to think not but um, it was very much a boomerang effect because it hit me right back in the nose. Uh, I don't think they necessarily got the point of it, which is that sometimes when you're trying to get into a career, uh, which is not in an industry that's not kind of very straight lines and not very obvious, sometimes you just actually have to do something completely different to anybody else. My letter could have just as easily been torn up by the person reading it and just going, A, what he's saying is wrong and B is a bit rude um, so uh, I wouldn't recommend going down that, that course of action to anyone uh, it's just it worked at that moment in time but would you rather work for the NFL or FC Barcelona uh, do you want me to tell the FC Barcelona story uh, go for it okay so 
Uh, I don't think I've ever gone on record with FC Barcelona. So what was nice about FC Barcelona in the end was that three years later, I ended up doing some work with the NFL and FC Barcelona. Um, so that that was a really nice thing. We, uh, Carlos Puyol, um, when he was just setting up, became a a face of our activities over in Barcelona. And so, so that was nice. But when I when I did the original interview, I I spoke back then some d- reasonably decent business Spanish. I don't know. I feel completely rusty, but. Um, and I met with four vice presidents in a room, and you got to probably imagine it as being kind of like almost like your grandparents' lounge. So it was all very kind of oak, oaky furniture, and very prim and proper, and everybody's kind of um, uh, well dressed. I was probably I was definitely the poorest dressed in the room. Um, the four vice presidents all spoke. Um, Spanish and English obviously very fluently but they brought in a translator and so all of their questions had to be in Catalan which was then translated by the translator to me in English I would then reply in Spanish most of the time which they would understand but it had to be translated back into Catalan through to them um, so first of all, the interview lasted a lot longer than the NFL one did. But the second bit was that um, I got a really clear viewpoint at that point, moment in time that I would be a complete outsider. Even though being a British person and working for the NFL was also kind of a fish out of water, um, you didn't feel that you were kind of intruding, whereas... I kind of felt with FC Barcelona um, that at that that period of time that you'd never you'd always be kind of outsider looking in. And why would people say Americans do speak English? So that must have helped. That must have helped a lot. I would actually say that um, I'm, first of all, there's my first couple of mistakes in presentations back in New York when I was permanently working there was that I I got. Um, I made some colloquial mistakes, mm. um, which I don't now. But, um, but I, th- I think I strongly think that probably in my first year I got away with it, just because people wouldn't really listen to what I said. They just got to say, "Oh, he's speaking a nice British accent." But I was back then; it was kind of curiosity because I, I actually don't think that there was there wasn't anybody in New York um, that was. That was was British. Now you mean the office? Yeah, yeah. In, in, sorry, yeah. In the, in the office. I, now I I can think of off the top of my head uh, six British folks, including my boss, uh, one Irish guy, um, and a bunch of other people. So it's become a, a lot more. But back then, I think I played the unique card of of being kind of one of the very few foreign accents in the building. When did this London office open? Uh, so the one that we're currently in at the moment was opened in 2006. Uh, we had London offices, offices based in London previously, but they were supervising or overseeing kind of pan-European activities. This was the first time that there was an office solely focused on the UK and only the, the, the UK. And what do you think would have happened if we didn't have the games here? Would the office 
be a, would there be a different feeling in this office? I'm not sure that there would have been an office, if I'm going to be honest. Um, I mean, when I first started um, with my permanent role, which was 2000, for the first couple of years, if I actually mention anything about um, trying to do something in the UK, I was, I was basically taken to one side and, and you know, gently told, stop talking about it. By uh, who? But just in general in the league, because... Um, we had failed from a very successful period in the 80s and early 90s. Um, the league is not used to, from a cultural perspective, failing. There were clearly some reasons why why we failed, and some of it was um, to do with the environment, but some, also some of it was on us, you know, just not making the right decisions at the right time. Um, and so mentally the league had moved on from the UK, at that at that point in time, there, there was a, uh, there were other markets where they were starting to get some traction and su- su- some success, um, but I I don't really think that we back then there was any kind of appetite to do anything further. I mean, the Monarchs had closed, London Monarchs had closed from Europe League in '98, and so whilst there was a London office, there was nothing actually going on. I mean, back in two thousand one. I want to say the number of viewers watching on Sky, which was only one game a week, which so it's a six o'clock game. We didn't have a nine o'clock game, and it was like six thousand viewers a week were watching. So back in say two thousand one, um, two thousand maybe, uh, was kind of the lowest moment for for kind of the sport as a whole. And you couldn't fill Wembley for sure. No, well, I don't think you could have done anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we started to do work on rebuilding, rebuilding the UK. I got kind of, I put a business case to Roger Goodell, who was the number two at that point in time. He wasn't a commissioner. Um, at the end of two thousand two, that I wanted to try and build something in the UK on a test case basis, and I got uh, after lots of conversations, I got blessing to try and do it almost as a sidebar to my my actual job so there was like three of us that worked for two or three years on trying to get um, NFL back onto free to air try and build up the Sky relationship so that they would show more games and we spent something like three quarters of a million dollars to a million dollars a year 2003 onwards through to 2005 uh, then 2005 we went on to ITV um, which then bolstered our numbers uh, we built up a website in 2003 nfluk.com started building a database so it wasn't like we just announced a game mm. and then it just happened there was three or four years of almost kind of from, at least from a league perspective black ops work going on um, where it was just a case of do it but don't make a big thing about it um, and it was your plan and Roger Goodell essentially signed this off yeah the plan was like in 2002 it was a bit I, I still have it as a 13 page powerpoint slide got to be framed somewhere in the house uh, no, no I actually <laughs> would struggle to find it but I, did, I, I saw it last year so I know I have it uh, maybe it's a little bit like my, my 10 things you're doing wrong maybe I'm scared <laughs> that if I look at it too closely 
what what I do remember was it was a it had a whole bunch of landmark um, targets and it said that um, at some point in time um, we if we if we built our audience up to certain levels then maybe we could look at eventually trying to do a regular season game which at that point in time um, was was a little bit like uh, JFK saying let's put a man on the moon um, I'm not saying it's the same equip uh, same achievement but uh, same kind of idea at that point um, right through to you know could we in, in the longer term uh, even do th- things like have a franchise so so when when the rain came down on that first game, it was Miami against the yeah, Giants. Yeah. What were you thinking? This looks bad, or this is going to work. This is going to go. This is going to get bigger. Because um, it was an ugly game. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I truly remember how things worked out um, at that particular moment in time. I mean, I I can remember the week afterwards when. England were playing, and you could just see all the NFL logos on the field. <laughs> I, that phrase of "there's no such th- uh, thing as bad publicity." I don't, I'm not sure that I agreed with that at that point in time. Um, <laughs> I think the focus in the first year, we, I mean, we knew that w- the game was going to sell out, or I, I was convinced, and um, the ticket sales were just. Uh, Crazy. Um, we built up a register of interest for the for the for the um, for people to to um, show their interest in buying tickets when it was announced at Super Bowl. We didn't go on sale till April May, but the number of people that had registered meant that um, we knew we could sell the stadium out multiple times over. Um, and I'd spent the previous year, even when I didn't know that we were going to have a game talking up like a poor man's Don King that we were going to have something Um, so I felt good about that, what I didn't feel good about and really didn't know about was whether the teams themselves would have a good experience Uh, there was a lot of nerves as to whether the teams would go back and then really struggle through the rest of the season none of us knew what um, jet lag or time zones would have as an effect for kind of what is arguably the shortest and most competitive major sport um, the Dolphins had come in uh, winless so they were already unhappy and disgruntled before the <laughs> so I've, and that got to remember I think that was week 8 so they were 0-7 going in uh, the Giants were 5-2 and two, um, so an awful lot of the nervousness on my side was less about, if I'm going to be honest, was less about the field or even the game itself. Um, it was much more, would the teams go back to the rest of the league and say that it was either a good experience or a bad experience? Now, back then, we, the business plan was that we were going to then play a game four years later. Four years later. Yeah, so the next game was supposed to go to um, uh, another territory and then it would go to two other territories and on. So the idea was we would get it four years four years after that. You mean it would be staged in Europe, elsewhere, or or, or around the world? Right. Right. Um, I'd need to look at my notes from way back then as to exactly what the sequencing was. But play a game in two thousand and seven, then play a game in two thousand and eleven. It went well. We got lucky because the Giants went on to win Super Bowl that year, mm. um, which certainly would prove that 
um, it wasn't so much of an issue. And then we got advised, I want to say within kind of like a week of that game, uh, that we were going to get another game in 2008. So then you go, you move from, well, did we sell our tickets because it was a one-off and because it was a novelty? And would you be as successful again after that? Um, and then you go in every single year not knowing whether you were going to get a game the following year. And you had to also kind of come up with proof as to what it was doing for the fan base and for business and other things. So... That means you're a Colts fan next week, right? Because they the first team not to have a bye week after a London game. So yeah, I'd be... love I'd love them to win because uh, again that would prove something. But that's the that's the beauty and the beast of working in sport is that you hope for lots of things that will help you in business, and it's completely out with your control. There's loads of other things that can actually happen. But um, what I think is fun when I think back to um, to the past is that we were at the very bottom rung of the ladder and kind of forcing our way onto that and constantly trying to work through and not knowing from year to year what we were going to do going forward. Whereas now we're in a situation where we're playing games at Wembley. In a couple of weeks' time, we play our first game at Twickenham. In a couple of years' time, we'll play our first game at the new Spurs Stadium. We know that we'll, we're contracted to play four games a year, a minimum each year uh, for the next few years. And so we've we've matured from being kind of this uh, whippersnapper part of the organisation that's kind of was probably in certain cases not necessarily doing things in the way that the league would want to always do it. I think we were a little bit more edgy in how we were trying to get noticed over here to now being a little bit more kind of part of the establishment. But I think it's going to help that you go to Twickenham in a couple of weeks' time, that you're going to be playing at the new Tottenham ground. Yeah. You've got the fan rally, but you're changing things up in that respect. And I mm-hmm. think, because there, there, there has been a bit of sameness about the, the match day experience, and it's a good question, like what can you actually change about a match day? But the fact that we're moving away from Wembley, I think, is a good thing. I think, first of all, there's a couple of different things to think through. One is that you want the teams to go away satisfied. You know that a team is going to lose every each time so they're going to be unhappy with the result but will they will they think that the setup and the organisation contributed to it or was it just down to them and, and, and on the day on the field so you want that this year we've got three new teams that have never played before Colts Bengals Redskins that have never come over before so that's absolutely key for us um, so for them that's their first match day experience every single game here of, of the three games they've got a completely different game day flavour and, and a game day feel our third game is uh, won't have any music to it it will be a big um, homage and celebration to uh, Royal British Legion and the Poppy Appeal and, and other things our second game will be the first game in Twickenham and the last game was kind of a Wembley experience um, so if, if if people go to all the three games They'll actually see a feel, see and feel a completely different vibe, but the core of it, which is, is it kind of buttoned up, and will the teams really have a great, great professional time? And on the other side, our research shows that there's loads of people still coming to the stadium for the first time. Mm. You know, I I think it would be a little bit pointless to be playing all these games to the same eighty thousand people every single time, and so you've got to remember that you've got to freshen some things up for the diehard core that are 
loyal and keep coming to to all our games. Try and come up with some form of regularity because I think all sports fans want some sense of tradition. And we have created our own tradition with our tailgates, you know, four or five hours before the start of the game and other things, but um, but then still try and freshen it up. So. Has it been a challenge to get certain teams to come here? And, and, and how many teams have come here out of interest? Uh, so when we finish the third game this year, it'll be 23 out of 32. So it'll be one show of, of three quarters of the league. So those remaining teams, do they pose a challenge to you? Is that why? Uh, some of it is, is just luck. So it starts off with you know what your home team is because they've offered, they've agreed. So let's say it's the Jags, since we know that they're playing every year. Um, you look at the schedule, and you have, um, they have eight, eight opponents coming, coming each year. You know seven of them um, way in advance. Uh, the eighth one will be based on how they finish at the end of the season and kind of um, seeded against. So the eighth one you don't know. So if you know the seven, you then talk to the Jags and you say, we'd really like to have the Chicago Bears come over, as an example. And they say, don't really want Chicago, um, I can give you Houston. And it just goes back and forth and we negotiate um, to a stage where both sides feel comfortable um, that it's the right matchup based on whatever we're trying to achieve. We then go to the away team that's been chosen and just make sure that they're happy. It completely depends on who the home teams are. So somebody like Seattle, mm. I know that for the last three years maybe, other than as a potential divisional opponent, there's, they've not been in the mix of, of anybody potentially that, that was coming as in the away team for a home team that was offering to come up. so They couldn't come anyway. Well, then just not on the schedule. Mm. So therefore, you just have to wait until when they could come around. The purpose is, is not to get all 32 teams. Um, it'd be a nice, happy coincidence if we were able to do it because that means you've got all teams with a good first-hand experience and they're ultimately going to be the ones voting on all the games that we play going forward or should we have a franchise in the future or whatever. So you want everybody to feel like they they have first-hand experience. But but it's also about trying to get interesting matchups, which is my own very, very own version of fantasy football. What do you do on a Sunday? Say goodbye to my family at like <laughs> 5.30. They're in the house, but I, I close the lounge door. The lounge is no longer, unless there's an emergency access to anybody else um, uh, TV comes on uh, for Sky Sports I have um, Game Pass on my iPad and I have Red Zone on another TV so I have three different things going on I then have social media feed um, going on or if I can remember I'll I'll change my roster for my office fantasy league, um, and I'll and I'll be on the phone to a variety of people through the evening. Occasionally, it'll be with New York folk, or it might be with NFL films. But also, sometimes it's looking at things, trying to at best trying to look things 
in the eyes of both the fan and the consumer so that you're you're up to speed on it because I'm not sure I'm not sure how you can actually best service people unless you actually try and walk in their shoes but you are a fan it's refreshing to hear that you are a big fan of the NFL because a lot of people especially in journalism I see people cover sports and then they fall out of love with that sport because they're always around it you will be there on a Sunday night predominantly as a fan you love the game I think the thing that's changed is that I I'm not particularly a fan of a team as much. Um, I mean, I'll root for home teams that are coming over, um, which means statistically I'm going to be disappointed most weeks at some point. Uh, at the moment, I have a fairly good idea as to who's coming over in 2017, so I'm also potentially rooting for them because you want those teams to have good records so that then when we announce the games... People will look at it and go, that could be a good matchup. So I've got I got professional kind of interest in lots of games as it is. Um, now you've got me intrigued though. Yeah, but I'm not going anywhere with it. Um, is there a new team next year? Uh, it's a binary thing. They either could or they cannot be. Right. So okay. that's as far as I'll go. <laughs> um, I, think, I think the other thing, Max, is that you've got to look at it you got to be bipolar in my role. So i got to be able to know as much about the sport so that an avid fan that, um, let's say I meet in Regent Street and wants to talk about the sport that he loves or she loves, um, that I can talk at kind of the same level and kind of... So that they actually feel assurances that, you know, guys that are actually looking after the, the future of the sport and this actually uh, know it and they're not just suits on the other side I've also got to look at it from a completely newbie or casual fan and try and come up with different things as to why would someone actually want to get into the sport what are the barriers you know I when I first started um, working on a lot of the stuff that we we now currently um, focusing on I would play a game with Americans because the challenge is that if you've grown up with something you actually can't understand why somebody else won't, won't understand it so uh, something that I would often say is if you ask an 8 year old in China how do they speak Mandarin they have no idea they just grew up they learnt it if you ask them grammatical rules as you help to help you to try and understand Mandarin they wouldn't they wouldn't even begin to be able to tell you how, how they've done it because they just know it so in the same way, um, someone that's relatively new to our sport, their biggest problem, first of all, is that they can't actually see where the ball is. And, and all they're actually seeing is a collision, multiple collisions across the field that actually doesn't look, they don't look like it makes any sense. So I would, I would pose to Americans when I was trying to do business cases as to why we needed more investment and why we needed to try more things to get um, content that was closer to try and breaking down the game is try and summarise in two sentences what this sport is about and I haven't met anyone that's able to actually do that in two sentences and I also flip it when I when I try and talk to Brits and say do that with cricket do it in two sentences and you can't, well, well I've not heard it yet and that's because both sports I would argue 
the core of what they're about is they're a game of bluff. They're actually the actual beauty of the sports are that often they are doing things visually with the intention of actually getting the other sides into a full sense of security so that they can then do something else. So a little bit like watching two master card players and you don't know the card rules and you're trying to actually watch, watch what, what they're actually doing. So once you try and really start thinking through how do you actually help people into getting into the sport and what are the triggers, um, you start thinking about the sport and you look at your content in a completely different way. And it's very difficult for avid fans to even work out how they got into the sport or what their learning um, process was. Um, as a result, um, an awful lot of our work ends up, and, and therefore going back to my Sundays, a lot of it can actually be just constantly challenging myself. I'll look at something and I'll actually go, how would I actually make that simpler? Or how would I encourage production companies or our broadcast partners or our social media partners to actually make that come to life so that someone else can spend more time? Because the, the, the difference between the 80s when I was getting into the sport and now is in the 80s you had no information at your finger fingertips but you'd actually because you also had tons of leisure time um, you made every opportunity to try and learn it by yourself whereas now we're in a world where everybody's spoiled with so much information and they don't have enough leisure time and they don't have enough uh, focus that you're actually having to try and find triggers to to get them into it a little bit more than, than ever before so my Sundays are very much bipolar there'll be times where I'll watch it as a fan and there'll be times where I'll try and watch watch games and, and try and think about it in terms of um, uh, as a non-fan and occasionally I'll, I'll try and um, bring friends in and ask them to sit down and torture them by asking them questions as to what they can see or they can't see or what do they understand or they, they don't understand one of the things that really intrigues me about football is you might love it, you might watch it, but you probably won't play it. And one of the concerns I have about the game I'm fascinated by is concussions. And I know the league is doing all that it can in the last five, ten years, but there is a perception, on, at least from my point of view, that there's a problem, we want to make money, we've got to, we've got to protect our product. We've also got to make sure that in 50 years' time, parents are still letting their kids play football so there is still an NFL. How have you seen the dynamic with the league and concussions in the last five or ten years? Uh, completely changed, um, and and kind of it's a daily daily conversation within the, within the league. It's it's an absolute key initiative. But I, what I would say is that it's it's not just about what the league tries to do. It's about trying to shift a whole culture. Of, of how not only we look at the game but also how athletes are supposed to, to be so um, a decade ago and, and obviously way beyond way before then athletes um, would see kind of going down injured or not playing through injury as a badge of honour and, and kind of a, a necessity so play through pain and play through 
through any form of injury um, was was kind of an absolute core. And I remember in the nineties being wowed by you know unbelievable situations where you know quarterbacks were playing on broken legs and still throwing the ball, and we'd all amongst fans we'd be like, "Isn't this unbelievable? Isn't this absolutely brilliant?" And um, the whole idea, therefore, of of admitting that you're hurt or injured would actually be seen as as kind of a a some form of fail, failure. I think what the league has tried to do, both by changing the rules and also changing the conversation, is to actually shift that because you've got to remember that that um, all of us, whether we're fans or players, have grown up with that kind of concept in mind and, and you're actually trying to shift it to now by changing both rules and also protocols so that now doctors can actually take people out of the game whether they're saying they're fine or not it still doesn't happen every time though does it that's the problem but that's because it's humans right as in it's it's not it's not an absolute science you're still doing it on the basis of what you actually are seeing. I mean, but there's loads of examples in the last couple of weeks of of head umpires looking at looking at players and saying, and then reporting reporting them. I think it's got tremendously better. I mean, Cam Newton. How did he not go out in week one against Denver? How how could no one say, look, we've got to get him out? Like, we're con- if you're concerned, I know they're concerned about yeah. wins, right? Yeah. But you've got to be concerned about his his health. Yeah, but. You and I are having a healthy conversation where you're looking at it from the point of view of the examples where you think it hasn't been consistent, and I'm looking at the examples based on look at the shift from where it's where it's ever been, and we're probably somewhere along the line both right. Um, the the fact that the fact that you can point to a game and actually say why is that not happening when your expectation is that it should be happening means that you as a fan have now accepted that that is actually the way it should be so what I'm saying is the league has successfully by changing rules where you've got a whole bunch of alumni coming to they come to London to promote the games themselves they're uncomfortable with the rule changes because they they don't recognise it as the game that they played in Um, and you've got a whole bunch of other players that say it's a contact sport you can't you can't soften it. Is um, that why the NFL pushed back Dr. Bennett and Marley, who who had the findings about brain uh, head trauma and, and football? There was that immediate pushback that this isn't happening. This isn't why footballers are dying. I wasn't anywhere near the core of any of those conversations. Um, in, in fact, if anything, as a, as an office, we were probably in the UK. We were probably so far removed from those initial conversations. Uh, we were still kind of in, alongside everybody else in the UK doing let's show the hardest hits of the week right um, we were probably as an office one of the last ones to kind of get the memo that we that everything was shifting um, what I would say is that science and research changes and improves and, and shifts people's kind of understanding and viewpoint and that does take time Does football have to be safe though? Does it have to be safe? Uh, I think it has to be safer 
Um, I think you can point to a lot of sports that will have a degree of, um, of of challenges in terms of in terms of its level of safety. I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that it's as safe as as possible while still being a true to the sport that it is. Um, and I think I think even if you look at things like um, how you tackle, um, you're you're asking coaches and players to adjust from things that they've goes back to my learning Mandarin or speaking Mandarin you, lots of people have just done it in a way that they've always done it it's not that they it's good or bad that that's just the way it's always been so it takes a period of time to, to kind of shift and adjust but it's still in a relatively short period of time when you compare it to that generation that that shift has taken place um, as I said at the start um, it's it's a very regular um, conversation and dialogue in, in the league office and we get we get um, lots of really good advice ourselves as to what what to do and how to cover it as a, as a satellite office last couple of questions and I'll let you go Cousin Sal on the Bill Simmons podcast said before the Jags Colts game that this was Brexit part two for the UK. Obviously, Ameri- a lot of Americans have a certain viewpoint of certain teams. Mm-hmm. What have you made of? And I, th- I see the relationship between the Jags and the UK fans getting bigger every season. Biggest example was last weekend when Andrew Luck was driving to, to win the game, essentially, and the Jags, the fans in, at Wembley were were cheering for the home team. How have you seen the relationship between the Jags and the UK fans grow or not grow? Yeah, I mean, the concept when we first tried to look at it was when we were going to multiple games, could you actually have a team that was returning uh, for a couple of reasons. One is getting games agreed is really hard work behind the scenes. Um, and you're asking you're asking a team to give up one-eighth of their season because um, they only have eight home games. So it's a really big commitment. By having a returning team, you have some form of certainty. So, so from a practical perspective, it was important. On the, in the spirit of we're trying to learn as much as we can over, over this whole period, and constantly try different things. The other concept was by having a returning team, would fans start being um, go go with the journey of of those teams and start being fonder. Um, of the of of the team that's coming over, so I'm not sure that um, there's a lot there's a massive increase in terms of number of people wearing Jags merchandise because I think the Jags were probably about the least supported team or secondly supported team before they came over just because Jacksonville's not well known the Jags are a recently recent new team uh, and since they've come over they've shot right up the number of fans that you see um, wearing Jags jerseys has, has increased as I said but then you've got uh, Giants fans or Redskins fans or Bears fans rooting for the Jags as a, their second favourite team and I think that has been a really good insight and learning for us Will there ever be a point where you're satisfied to the, to the point where you can leave this job happy? 
Uh, there may well be a point when I leave this job. That that will be for others to decide as, as to as to what. But I can't imagine that there'll be ever a point where I'll be satisfied. I, I kind of model our office on Bill Belichick and being relentlessly dissatisfied. Um, partly because what we're trying to do has never been done before. Um, which means that you're going to make mistakes. Um, in any case, you're going to. You're never going to have done things perfectly. There's always room for improvement. I mean, I wrote down about twelve things from the game last Sunday, where I th I think we either dropped the ball or um, there's room for improvement, substantial room for improvement. Even though, for the most part, I think. What I've heard is that everybody was really happy with it. We can you tell me one of those or not? I'll give some examples of small things like when you're on the concourse, uh, the TV feed that we were we were showing uh, was the wrong TV feed, so you didn't actually see the scores. So if somebody wanted to go to the toilet or get a drink or food, they could actually see what was happening in the game, but they wouldn't necessarily know what was going on. Uh, right through to um, there. Are, a few things on the jumbotron where I felt that we 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 didn't um, put the right kind of stuff up. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail because I'll just break down and cry. Uh, no, but my point here is that um, every single time you do anything, you've got to constantly try and look to improve because um, there's no actual benchmark. You're not up against anybody else. You're not trying to do. You're not trying to beat someone else. This is about trying to self-improve, be as fan-friendly as possible, um, position your sport in a positive way compared to to um, other sporting experiences. Try and be bold and do things that other people haven't done. So um, when we first decided to try and do Regent Street, that was a fairly ballsy thing to do I'd argue um, each year we improve the experience a bit better now that's the other thing is um, if you don't do it as well as you want to then you've got to wait a year to do it again so so you've got to keep challenging yourself uh, whatever the end game is uh, will not ever be the true end game because it, there'll always be uh, another level that you need to then get to on the mountain. So, whenever I leave the job, um, I might be proud of things, and I might be proud of our group as to what we've actually done, but I won't be satisfied because um, you just got to keep being hungry. And you know, it's, it's like our head coaches on the field. Um, you concentrate on one game at a time, but you always. There's no such thing as perfection. You'd be a great patriot. Rapid fire quickly. The biggest NFL name you have in your phone book? Uh, would be Andrew Luck. Your favourite team growing up was? The Buffalo Bills. If you had one question for Rex Ryan, what would it be? Uh, did you really know who was the starting quarterback last week? <laughs> would you rather be a kicker making $500,000 a year or an offensive lineman making $2 million? Uh, I. 
What's, what was the point of that question? Kicker's safer, and I think practice during the week is a lot easier. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. That. There are times where you look at you look at kickers that have missed critical. Oh yeah. Critical uh, kicks. And, um, Blair Walsh looks petrified now. Yeah, and I, I think that they get a really hard, hard to form of PR because I actually think that the nature of their work is is petrifying mm. so I think I'd still prefer to be the offensive lineman even if the kicker was the one earning two million because there you're within a team you know you you've got camaraderie and you're actually trying to do things with everybody the kicker you're on an island and if you do well then you're a kicker you're supposed to do it and if you don't do well then you're going to get cut so, I would I would take the offensive lineman every day. And last one, I tried to mix the franchise question up a little bit. Would you rather host a Super Bowl in London or have a franchise in London? Oh, franchise! I, I, I might be alone, but I, I don't even see the point of a Super Bowl over here. Um, I, I mean, it'd be a great experience, but it's a little bit like tournaments that we host from other sports. One. You look forward to it, but once it's gone, it's gone. Um, I also would have my doubts as to public transportation systems on a late Sunday night in February in, in <laughs> London. But a franchise, uh, what, whatever your own viewpoints as to whether you want one or you don't want one, that's sustainable and that's for the long term and that's part of a long term journey. Um, I'm not one of those ones that look for kind of one mo- one moment thrills. Um, I want to actually make a difference. Well, I hope people know a little bit more about you now. Thanks for your time. Cheers. So, episode one is in the books. I had a lot of fun with Alistair. What did I learn today? Well, I learned that Alistair Kirkwood put Sky Sports on his TV, Game Pass on his iPad, Red Zone on another TV. He's got his social media going, his office fantasy league going. And he's on the phone. So if we all thought NFL fans we were busy on a Sunday night, well, you heard it here. Alistair is a little bit busy than all the rest of us. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really excited to bring you more exciting American guests onto this podcast. People with a story to tell and people who know their subject. So thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time. Next time.